This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That say that I'm joined on Football CFB today by Jim Proudfoot, commentator who's worked at European Championships, World Cups, the Champions League, the Premier League, you name it, Jim's covered it. First of all, Jim, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Karen. Thank you very much for asking. The first thing I want to say, it's, it's a kind of personal way to start, but I was recently speaking to your colleague, Leroy the Senior, and he was, he was saying that when it comes to your commentary, he just loved working alongside you. And in terms of de- developing a relationship with a fellow co-commentator how important is that i think it's absolutely essential from from many different aspects the most important thing obviously is going to be how it comes across to the listener um, that you want the listener to enjoy what they're listening to obviously so many people that are listening to the game have emotional investment in what's happening in terms of where the ball is and what the score is. But you you still want people to be uh, in a position that they're enjoying listening to you. And so to enable that to happen for the best, I think you need both the commentator and the co-commentator to be enjoying it themselves. And clearly, if they get on very well with each other and enjoy each other's company, that is, is, um, is, is always going to help. And it, it's like... It's like any job in many ways. There'll be people that you enjoy working with more than others. Uh, and I think generally speaking, not, in, not entirely um, throughout my career, but generally speaking, um, I've been very fortunate that I've got on with just about everybody I've worked with. Some more than others, uh, you know, that's, that's inevitable. And there will, there will be people I work with who I feel will bring the best out of me more than some others. But it's, it, it's very kind what Leroy had to say. And I'll have to make sure that uh, he thanks that check that I sent him. <laughs> Before we talk about your career in general, am I right in saying that you're a fan of Torquay United? Yeah, absolutely. So working with Leroy uh, was fantastic for me because uh, he had been one of the most successful managers the club had had. Um, and we always always a point of reference for any conversation how they're getting on he still lives in the southwest i'm obviously from the southwest as well um so always plenty to talk about but no shortage of anecdotes from leroy who's a, a fantastic guy um and it's a, a club that's very close to my heart I probably wake up four or five mornings a week and wish i supported somebody better <laughs> but you start with them and I get an enormous sense of satisfaction out of, out of watching them and enjoying going to the games. I don't get to see them as often as it would like, uh, as you can imagine. But listen, that's a very small price to pay uh, for the job I'm fortunate enough to do. But, um, but yeah, I am a fan of Torquay. I think that that's a good thing. I, I've always been happy to talk about who I support because um, in many ways that gets me around any accusations of bias. Because if somebody says, I'm commentating on a game and, and somebody says I was biased towards such and such a team, I can say, hand on heart, well, no, I don't support them. I support Torquay. And I've only had to commentate on Torquay, I think, probably three or four times in uh, however many matches it, it is that I've done. So um, it, it, I think it works pretty well. Obviously, in the, in the Premier League, when I was working in Scotland as well, there are, there are sides that you, you like more than others. A lot of that really is dependent on people, I suppose, in our job. Um, you... Um, gravitate towards the you know the good guys and you want them to do well on a professional basis but I can I can say hand on heart the job's difficult enough for all of us without having to actually think about who we want to win a given game and 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 to be biased towards them so uh, yeah any accusations of bias that you read against any of any of us I would say 100% are, are pure falsehoods. You mentioned the fact you've commentated on Turkey a few times in your career What's that like commentating on the team you love? I imagine it's very oh, difficult. It is very difficult because, um, well, for two reasons. 
you got the emotional investment in it um, because obviously I want them to win. Um, but secondly, it's always at the back of your mind that you have to be um, seen to be playing it down the middle. And so you probably in reality go more the other way um, and, uh, you know, overcritical. I think I was probably fortunate that thinking back over the games that I did commentate on them, they didn't play well on any of the occasions. So it was relatively easy to be critical. I didn't have to commentate on a 90th minute talkie winner, uh, which might have been a little bit difficult to sort of keep my emotions in check and rein it in. But full of admiration for, um, you know, as you can imagine, we all know who each other support. So, so those that do support Premier League clubs uh, or have a soft spot for them and who are commentating on them, I'm full of admiration for the way that they can be completely dispassionate about um, the job that they're doing when they are watching their team. Because it, it, I personally found it very, very difficult, yeah. In terms of you, I'm interested to ask this question. When did you first want to become a football commentator? When was that the ambition? Because... We know what it's like. Lots of young boys dream of being footballers, but to get into the broadcasting side is a big thing as well. I mean, when did you have that dream for the first time? Um, when I went to university. I went to university at 17 and I didn't, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do until about three months before I went to university. Um, I went to university in Exeter. I wanted to get involved in the student media. And within... Two weeks of my first term, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I'd always been interested in radio uh, and always been interested in football. I never really put two and two together that, that I wanted to be a commentator. Um, I certainly knew from a, from a long way out I was never going to be good enough to play at any high standard. But, I, you know, one of the, the beauties of, of leaving home and having more uh, time on my hands was that I, I wanted to go and watch more football and obviously being back in the southwest I was brought up in Birmingham but being back in the southwest close to Torquay I could go and watch them play which I'd never had really the opportunity to do before um, but as I say within two weeks probably of starting university I knew two things firstly I was doing the wrong degree and I didn't do anything about that. I should have done. I should have gone and changed and done something that was um, more suited to me. Secondly, that I wanted a career in broadcasting. And from that point, I was so fortunate that within three months, I was getting paid for reporting on football. So uh, from the point that I decided I wanted to do it, I've been doing it pretty much ever since. And, uh, you know... I, it is a cliche, but I consider myself immensely fortunate for the huge amount I had, particularly at the beginning, but, you know, throughout my career, but particularly at the beginning, in just doors open for me um, out of nothing. And, you know, I'll always be thankful for that. Am I right in saying you started at Devon Air for your career and not only were you a football reporter, but you also did a bit of DJing as well? Uh, yes, I was... Um, not a very good DJ, um, but I was at Devonair. Devonair at the time was really struggling. Um, and that was, in hindsight, a very good thing for me. They um, had no money. They were about, um, probably when I went there, they didn't know at that stage, but it wasn't long before they lost their franchise, which was you know, a, a massive rarity in, in ILR uh, that that was going to happen. Um, and they had a, a sports team. And looking back on it now, it's, it's amazing. But the, the sports team was run by John Ayres, a, a fantastic fella, not that much older than me, really. He was in his, in his first job, and he's been working the BBC in the Southwest now for probably the best part of 25, 30 years. Um, he was uh, seconded to Capital Radio, who had a, a share in Devonair. And so he would go at the weekends, and he would work for Capital and that meant that there was space to do um, reporting on the local games and also present it. And at one stage, there were three of us working on that program. And our, we were all teenagers. It was Russell Fuller, who's now the tennis correspondent at, of the BBC. Jonathan Wall, who um, until recently was the controller of Five Live, and me. And we were the three. And uh, I think Russell at 20 by the time we left, was the oldest of the three of us. Um, but 
I'm sure that they would also say that it was a fantastic place to learn uh, because it was proper radio. Um, we weren't getting paid very much for it, but that wasn't the point. What we were getting out of it was experience that was absolutely priceless. And you could make your mistakes, and I made many, um, but in front of a relatively small audience, um, it's not a part of the world where football is enor uh, an enormous passion. And as a consequence, we were given the opportunities uh, to do things on air that we would never have got elsewhere. And it was uh, just a fantastic start. As I say, you know, you, you can't be fortunate than that to have had that opportunity at that age. Something I'm also interested to see at the start of your broadcasting career, and maybe even now, I don't know, maybe, maybe you still do it. Do you, do you study the work of other commentators? That's a really interesting question. Um, yes. Um, but particularly now, I think that it is important for anybody coming into the business not to try and be a given commentator. I mean, obviously, you need to look at the people that you admire think what it is about how they do their job um, that make them stand out why you like listening to them uh, and try and take those facets of their work uh, cherry pick you know characteristics from from various ones uh, and 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 try and become a sort of a combined version of that but if you were to say i want to be martin tyler and you you try and copy martin's style then you're just going to sound like an inferior Martin Tyler or an inferior whoever. Um, early in my career, uh, I worked for Jonathan Pierce in London, uh, who had obviously a very idiosyncratic style at the time. And that was the house style. And looking back now, I think that I tried um, to be too much of a carbon copy of him. And you, you, you couldn't do it. You couldn't, you couldn't, commentate in that way and be as good at it as as he was so uh, I, you know that was a lesson that perhaps I learned the hard way and it maybe took me a little bit longer to learn that lesson than it, than it should have done um, but yes I mean, you certainly look at the people that you admire now I do a lot more work in television uh, yeah I, I look at, at various commentators and and there are there are many aspects of what they do that I enjoy but I think that that they're all so different well, essentially we're all doing the same job but I think that there are so many different approaches and different nuances to it um, for them to all have got to the, the, the absolute pinnacle of their careers. Indeed and, and for you you mentioned the fact you worked alongside Jonathan Pierce there when was the first moment you well maybe it was your first game I suppose but when was the first moment you got to maybe a big stadium and thought wow I'm here and, and I'm in charge of this game? Um, probably the first Premier League match that I did on my own and I, I can't actually remember what the first one was I could tell you to within a few weeks when it was it would have been in the sort of the winter of 1994 moved to London at the, just after the start of that 94-95 season so the first time that they, they probably let me do uh, a Premier League game on my own would have been, I don't know, sort of Christmas time uh, that season. Um, but I do remember going to Old Trafford to, for the first time to report on a, a Manchester United match against West Ham. And that place, I'm, I'm, I'm not a United fan. I know you've got leanings towards them. Um, I'm not a United fan per se, although I've been very fortunate to have covered them quite extensively. Um, but that place has still got a real feel to it. You walk in to an empty stadium and it has a presence like nowhere else. Uh, and so I think probably the first time that I went there was a, a particularly special moment. And it made me think, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, how lucky I am to, to be doing this. And I think when it comes to the Premier League, you mentioned 1994 there. In your time covering the Premier League, You've got to comment on some of the real greats of the league's era. Obviously, it started in 92, but the likes of Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, Ian Wright, I know they're all Arsenal I've just mentioned, um, through to the likes of De Bruyne, Trent Alexander-Arnold, 
Mo Salah right up to the present day. Also, likes a Cantona, Beckham, Giggs, Scholes, Keane. We could go on and on. Matt Letizzi, of course. What was who would you say have been your favourite players to commentate on over the years? Who, when you knew you went to the stadium, you knew you were in for a treat. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Letizia. Um He he's not the best footballer I've ever commentated on, nor would he claim to be. But in terms of enjoyment, then then he would be right up there. I spent two years um, covering Southampton home and away in the 90s um, when I was working for the local radio station on the South Coast. And as a consequence, you could be biased, uh, and you obviously you're expected to be biased, towards the teams on your patch. So we had Southampton, Portsmouth and Brighton. So I was commentating on um, that Southampton side that was fighting relegation in both seasons. He was keeping them up, not single-handedly because that would be you know, rude to the, the other players who all played their part, but he was the star. If he didn't perform, they didn't win games. Um, they might be able to shut out the opposition, but he was the one really that, that knitted it all together. Two of the favourites, uh, um, until my dying day, I've got no doubt that if you ask me to list um, my 10 favourite goals I've commentated on them, on two of them were scored by him in the same half of the same game. <laughs> and it's just, he, he was remarkable because you never knew what you were going to get. And I've seen him play a number of bad games, but some of the things that he could conjure up were just extraordinary. Uh, um, the goals I'm talking about were... Uh, the Southampton-Newcastle game in the, I'm guessing it would be the 93-94 season. Um, one of which, I, I like it even more for the fact he mishit it. He'd he done all the approach play and then scuffed it into the net. I think he's talked about the fact that it spoils the goal. It just enhances it for me. Um, that, he, that he's just sort of almost a lazy kind of finish after the, the brilliance. So I consider myself very fortunate to have seen him play on such a, uh, on a regular basis at his height. Um, he'd be, you know, undoubtedly one of my favourite players. And as I say, not the best. If you ask me to pick a, a team of the best players I've, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have seen, even the best players I'm lucky enough to have seen in the Premier League, you wouldn't get in it. But he, he's right up there in terms of the ones I've enjoyed watching. That's interesting to, to hear. And when I interviewed him recently, he was one of my heroes growing up. Not a Southampton fan, would never claim to be, but... You, you, you mentioned it there, just the, the, the standard of goals that he scored and the, the, the smile he brought to your face watching him, absolutely incredible. And that leads me on to, to talk about the Premier League as a whole. What have been your favourite moments to commentate in that league over the years? I think anybody likes drama. Um, just about the most dramatic moment was the, um, the Manchester City first title win, the famous Aguero moment. Now, I wasn't there. I was at the other game. I was at Sunderland against Manchester United. And um, you'll remember that that game had finished first. United, when the full-time whistle blew, had won the league unless City scored uh, a late goal. I think they probably got the 2-2 f- the goal at that stage, but hadn't certainly hadn't got the 3-2 goal. So we were listening to it. And conveying what was ha- what we could hear to the people around us a lot of Sunderland fans so uh, you know when the roar goes up at the stadium of light for the third goal going in a lot of those would be that was on the on the back of me shouting in the press box city have just scored they've won it uh, so that was um, you know just a remarkable moment but there've been so many even this season I was at the you know Leicester's 9-0 win at Southampton um, so many sort of pieces of history. Andros Townsend's goal um, for Palace at uh, Manchester City last year, the, you know, the goal of the season, I think it, it got voted goal of the decade as well. I was you know, there for that. There have been so many. Um, and I, I suppose you get blase about it, that you, you start any given season and know you're going to be desperately unlucky if you don't see something that ends up being iconic. Indeed, then. This is something else I'm intrigued to ask. You've commentated in the Premier League. You've talked about those massive moments. When you got your first chance to commentate at an international tournament, what was that like and how proud were you? Because I imagine as a commentator, that's the pinnacle. Yeah, it, it is um, the part of the job that I, I, I really enjoy. I like 
traveling don't get to travel uh, as much as I used to uh, to to watch football abroad um, but the tournaments are just fantastic the first one that I covered was Euro 96 uh, I didn't commentate on that one um, I was um, reporting uh, for Capital um, but was too far down the peck in order to uh, to actually commentate on any of the games um, but the way things had worked two years later, Steve Wilson and Ian Crocker have both left the company. Um, and so I was then the number two commentator within the group. And so I went to France uh, to commentate on basically the best of the rest. So Jonathan would do the England games, did the opener, did the England games. I think he probably did the Scotland games as well. Um, but I did um, a lot of Germany and, and France games. And being at that first uh, major tournament, was fantastic um, and the sense of excitement I'm, I, I genuinely think is still with me I, I hope it is for every tournament that I'm, uh, I'm lucky enough to do I've done I've done them all apart from Euro 2008 since then um, and hopefully there will be a, a few more to come but they are brilliant they are brilliant you can get you get caught up in um, in England that goes without saying. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to have commentated on England in the major tournaments for the last few years. Uh, and I, I genuinely believe, and I'm not for one moment saying that England will win something, but they, they're clearly they're getting closer. And I think that the next two tournaments will provide the best chance to win something probably of my broadcasting career, I believe, watching England. It's not to say that it will happen, but I think they've got more chance of doing it in the next two than, than in any that I've done so far. And, and maybe more chance in the next two than they would have in you know two or three after that. I don't know. Um, but whether I would be able to contain myself commentating on England in a major final I don't know I found the World Cup semi-final pretty difficult because um, I, I would it sounds really bad to say it um, very selfish but I was I, obviously I wanted England to win it but at the back of my mind I was thinking you know very few people have, have had the opportunity and the privilege of commentating on England in a World Cup final if we can hang on for 25 minutes here, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to commentate on England in a final. And then, of course, as soon as you think that, they go and concede. And that's, <laughs> that's what being an England fan is. Um, but, yeah, I, I, it probably, I've never said that out loud before. And it probably doesn't sound very great. It makes me sound quite shallow. But I, I did think it. I did think, that, you know, what an opportunity this, this could be uh, from a personal point of view. And I'd like to, I haven't got the money to be able to do it, but I'd like to say that if England ever win a major tournament, uh, then that would be it. I would pack everything up. Thank you very much. It's never going to get better than this. I'm gone. I'm retiring. I'm heading off for the hills. I'm never going to commentate on another game because I've just done, you know, what will be the, you know, the pinnacle, watching England win a major tournament. It may well never happen. And certainly if it happened this time round, next time round, I'm in no financial position to be able to jack it all in. Not yet. You mentioned the fact that you're an England fan, right? And that's that's something that I, I, when you're a fan of the nation that you were born in, that's to be expected. And to commentate on them in a final, as you say, would be the ultimate privilege and honour because not many people have got to do that. And obviously being from Scotland, <laughs> it's a rarity. <laughs> I'm probably never going to see it. So uh, good luck to you. Um, Commentating on other finals, the Euros, the World Cup, Champions League finals, does that give you even more of an urge to see England get there because you've commentated on moments where you've seen sheer jubilation at the top level? Yeah, absolutely. And funny enough, this week, uh, I mean, lockdown has, has not been particularly busy, as you can imagine. Um, but I did um, this week have... Um, a job to look back on the Germany-Italy final. No, sorry, the uh, the Germany-Italy semi-final and then the Italy-France final in 2006. And watching those Italian celebrations, I, I was fortunate, I went to both of the games, even more fortunate in a way that the semi-final, which is one of the best games I've ever been to, uh, I didn't have to work. So I was there and had, a, you know, got in, had a ticket and could actually enjoy it without having to work and that was just an extraordinary occasion but the final 
which that was the first World Cup final that I'd been to, 2006. And those celebrations, the Italian celebrations, will live with me for a long time. Uh, and yeah, it, you do think well, just how great it must be uh, to support the team that have done that. And you can imagine we, we know commentators from various places around the world. I'm good mates with one of the French TV commentators. And um, I know exactly what it, it meant for him, the last, you know, winning the last World Cup. And yeah, it, it is still a pipe dream, of course. But it, it, I, I do, I can't kind of can realize what it would be like um without having experienced it so yeah the answer to your question absolutely definitely it does make me sort of pine for it even more this might seem like a silly question and please put me in my place if it is what are the differences between commentating on tv compared to radio no i don't think it's a silly question at all i think that um the the, the main the, the principal difference is obviously what you say and what you don't say. So in radio, all the time you have to be signposting where the ball is on the field. And on telly, that's the one thing that you should never do. So when you flip between them, I, I, I tend to go between radio and TV a fair bit. And you have to sort of concentrate even now, sort of think five minutes before going, oh, right, what can I say today? What can't I say today? So that is, that is the the main difference. TV, is um, you can be, even as a commentator, a little bit more analytical. Still not too much, because I don't believe that's our job. And, you know, you, you've got people who play the game alongside you. Um, and, you know, that is what they are there. And they always should be able to do that better than we can. Um, but I think that... TV in some ways is more difficult. I find it, I think I find it more difficult. I would say I'm better on radio than I am on TV. I think that, um, that on TV, you've, there's a pressure to find the right words for the right moment that there isn't necessarily on radio because on radio, you, so much of it is description of what has happened. I'm not playing down the art of the radio uh, commentary at all. Um, but I think on TV, I think that, um, I, I think that there is, you, you're under pressure to provide that soundbite moment where you're not necessarily quite so much on radio. If you can on radio, then so much the better. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, on TV, you you can't say uh, the blindingly obvious. That's the one thing you've got to try and stay away from. Richie Benno, I know it's a different sport, and even, dare I say it now, a different age. But what made him so good was how minimalist he was. That if he had nothing to say for 20 minutes, he didn't say anything. That takes enormous discipline we clearly you can't get away with that if you're doing a football commentary you cannot go 20 minutes without saying anything and the pace of the two games completely different but i think that you can let it breathe tv you've got to be brave to do so your producer also has to be brave to let you do it um and know you know what to say at the right time less is most definitely more and I think every TV commentator will tell you that. But, but knowing it and being able to do it sometimes can be two different things. In terms of broadcasting, see, as a commentator, do you get talk back in your ear while a game's going on or are you solely focused on the game? Uh, well, again, that differs um, between radio and TV. Um, radio, you get very little talk back. Um, and probably most commentators would prefer slightly more. Um, there will be times that we'll be watching it and we can't um, see replays that are particularly good. Sometimes you can't see them at all. The people at base are watching the replays and you're sort of kind of reliant. You're sending messages to them kind of subliminally, almost by what you're saying sometimes, to try and entice a reaction from them. The best producers will know if there's a controversial incident, they will give their opinion. They'll say, no, that's a penalty or that wasn't a penalty. And then you catch your commentary 
along those terms and obviously you build up relationships with producers and there are those that you you trust i've been lucky enough to work with two or three absolutely fantastic producers david heen charlie jones names that won't mean anything to anybody really but but guys who if they told me something they'd seen it on a monitor they told me something i believed that i didn't i didn't need a second opinion that was good enough for me and and they they never got them wrong um on tv yeah you've got people talking in your ear all the time two people talking in your ear one of them uh you've got the match director so he is uh not calling every camera shot um but he is certainly calling for the replays he's telling saying what close-ups are coming next um and again giving his opinions on stuff in terms of you know replays that he might have seen before he's put the replay in um you will also get a producer uh, i work on the world feed a lot so they're actually working those two are working for different companies um so might um that will talk across each other occasionally i found that quite difficult to deal with and i think most people do when you make the the, the switch from radio into tv it's so different uh, I do remember a TV commentary I once did where uh, somebody said something and I parroted it out bizarrely. I, I can't remember. I know the word sponge was involved, but, my, <laughs> but I just remember someone said something to do with a sponge in my ear. And I said the word sponge on air and that made no sense whatsoever. And in the days before the real proliferation of social media, you kind of got away with those things more than you do now. Um, but I do remember that. And I found, I found taking a TV talk back pretty difficult to start with when you've got a match director. And there are some directors, they're all absolutely brilliant at what they do and putting the pictures to screen. I prefer working with directors who don't say quite so much but that's personal taste there are other, you know other commentators who who like the, the the steady chat and and find that that helps the rhythm of what they do but we're all very different but it is i'm, I'm used to it now um but yeah it can be it can be quite off-putting at times another thing that intrigues me with commentary and I've, I've interviewed a few commentators but weirdly enough i've not asked this question so you're going to be the first i've asked it to see when you're commentating on a live game compared to something like a match of the day goals and Sunday type that they're potentially just going to cut down into chunks. Do you change your style at all? Yeah. Um, and it's easier, I think, to do a live commentary as opposed to doing a highlights commentary. If you're doing a highlights commentary, you can kind of, you're editorializing as you go and you think, well, that's not going to make the edit. So you, you know, come out, halfway through or whatever and you can get if you're not right on top of your game i think it's it's easy to be lazy on a highlights edit and um you know miss good chances or all of a sudden you you sort of coming in too late um i think that you know the guys that do match the day are, are very good being able to i think you have to treat it as a 90 minute game and I think these days I, I, I would treat it just as a 90 minute game a 90 minute commentary um, and forget the fact that it's been you know cut down for, for a six minute edit you've got to be if, if you're doing an edit you've got to be quite disciplined you've got to have sort of little um, sound bite chunks that you you come out with stats that they can put in that, that are kind of relevant wherever they end up needing a, a little bridge chance within the edit um whereas if you're doing the commentary those things will just sort of fall into place naturally um but yeah it is different it is different and it, it, it's you know it's not easy as i say i find doing a full game easier than, than doing highlights another thing you've commented on we talked briefly off air about it that i miss these days you see it now and again masters football what was it like yeah. commentating on those well, it was great for me personally because it was the first opportunity I ever had to do any live football on Sky or any live football on telly. Um, and again, it was an opportunity where they, they showed a lot of faith in me, bearing in mind that I'd not done any TV before. 
um and you know as one producer i remember put his neck on the line saying you know that you need give this fellow a chance he might not be any good but give him a chance and i'll always be very grateful to to andy hornet for um you know for that opportunity and and um you know showing so much faith in me but it it was hair and scare and eight minutes a half football um some people taking it more seriously than others uh breakneck speed until they'd all run around for five minutes, in which case it slowed down to walking pace, but it was lighthearted. And so you could get away with stuff. You, you could make mistakes and it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. I mean, not that, you know, we're football commentators, we're not brain surgeons, we make mistakes now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Personal pride obviously comes into it and you don't want to, but uh, I'm not trying to make the job more grandiose than it is. But certainly even within the context of what we do, Masters football was, you know, they, they, we were cut a bit of slack, but it was great. It was fantastic. And it was the nature of it because there were a lot of goals per minute. Um, it, I think it instilled a lot of, a, a lot of discipline in, you know, into a young commentator. They were great fun to do. And we had um, players who weren't playing in a given game would come up and would commentate alongside us. And so you got you were meeting people all the time, and it was always interesting seeing which players took it seriously, um, and which players didn't. And you could you could often tell there was always not that we ever speculated financially, of course, but you could always look down a, a, a list and and have a fair idea who's going to win those tournaments. You were, there were never any major shocks really because. Um, if you had, if you were a team that had a couple of fit 35, 36 year olds, you knew were going to take it seriously. They were probably going to win. In terms of co-coms there, you talked about the fact some players would come up and commentate on it and you, you've commentated throughout the years with so many ex-players. As a football fan, first and foremost, how much pride and excitement do you get when you get to speak to former professionals or sometimes current professionals about, about the game that you love? Yeah, it's fan. It, it is absolutely fantastic, um, and it, you know, I know I've used the word privilege a lot, but but it is. I mean, I, I do a lot of work with Stuart Pearce. I'm just picking Stuart out, at, you know, at, at random. Somebody that um, I grew up watching. Um, one of the first games that that I went to, he scored in, and and now I I, I get paid to to watch the the country that we both love to support and you know, sit alongside him for, for every England game. And, and it is great. Um, Ex-footballers are, are fantastic. And you, you get ideas about people and it comes down to it, they are just normal guys. Some you will like more than others, but, um, but they're, they're just normal people. Uh, and it's it's fantastic to be able to reminisce, um, you know, in, in situations and look back on you know matches that they played. Joy doing that. Some don't at all. Some some look at it as as being part of a of a past life. Um, some will look. Some who've been managers will look fondly back on their playing career, but won't really enjoy talking about management so much. Um, but you know, every, everybody loves watching the game and they're all very different in the way that they do the job um and you know it never fails to amaze me that you know i've, I've been watching football a lot of football for 25 years um, but that you still you watch it in a completely different way to how an ex-player watches it and i think that's an ex-player at any level as well um you know even um players who've played non-league football a decent standard for a few seasons will see things um, that commentators won't see um, and I, I think it's uh, it's interesting that you get a lot of ex cricketers go into cricket commentary as opposed to uh, analysis or as well as analysis but you don't get ex footballers do what I do um, and I don't know why that is you get lots you know we work alongside lots but we you don't get many play by play ex-footballers um, and listen if the industry was was chock full of them I wouldn't be working so I'm not I'm not knocking <laughs> that or decrying the situation or suggesting that that is the, the big way forward I'm not trying to put all the commentators out of work 
but it's just an observation that uh, you know whereas you do in other sports you just don't in football well, I'm not sure quite sure why that is it's a very good point something I've actually not thought about in depth but when you say that and you use the the, the analogy there of, of cricket I you could name five or six just at the top of your head that I've, I've played the game and then commentating cricket. So it's, it's a bit, and tennis, another one. How many ex-tennis yeah. players are, are constantly talking you through games, especially Wimbledon season? So that's a very good point. And something I want to talk to you about, obviously I'm based in Scotland, um, as you know. Satanta, it was a, a not, not terribly short-lived, but it, it wasn't a company that had a, a great lifespan in the UK. But despite that, you were incredibly prolific with Satanta. You commentated in over 300 matches. For Satanta, yeah. you commentated on the Scottish Premier League as well. What was that experience like for you? Were you excited to, to commentate in the Scottish game? I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I was there from 2006 to 2009. Um, Satanta was headed up by Colin Davidson, who had been a producer at Sky. He took Ian Crocker up to do the the games, but they needed another commentator based in Glasgow. Um, I had a young family, um, so I didn't move up, but I used to fly up on um, Friday night, um, work the weekend, and come home Sunday night, Monday morning. Um, I loved it. I love Glasgow as a city. I love Scotland. I've got, um, as you might guess, with a name like Proudfoot, it's a Scottish name. So I've got, you know, Scottish ancestry not too far back. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Scottish football, this side of the border, is decried as a product by people who haven't seen a lot of it. Um, now, I'm not going to pretend that um, it is something that it isn't in terms of standard. But I re it was competitive. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was proud to work on it. I, and I, I don't know whether... I, I didn't kind of like to ask the question, really, as you can imagine, how Scottish football fans found it when the, you know, the two commentators, Crocs did a lot more than I did. He would do 90% of the, of the SPL games and I did you know, 10% how they found it to have two Englishmen working on their product. Um, but, I mean, he has done it for years and years, has done it absolutely brilliantly. I think he's a top bloke and a, and a fantastic commentator. And I was, you know, still am very proud to have uh, spent three years doing that, did a lot of European football, um, but really into the Scottish game, met some great people. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm not just saying that. I was um, devastated. It's probably too strong a word. You remember the circumstances behind Satanta yeah. going. We all lost our jobs. And I was one of the very fortunate ones that because I've managed to pick up work relatively quickly and it didn't affect me in the same way it affected the vast majority of my colleagues. But it was a good place to work. It was a good team. That Glasgow office particularly was just a fantastic place with good people. And I enjoyed the product and I really looked forward to going to games. And I followed St Mirren. Um, I thought I can't commentate um, on a league and not have a vested interest in it, really. Um, I didn't commentate on many St Mirren games on the telly, but they were my team. I went to Watton, got friends with some St Mirren fans. We used to go to games together. I went to... Um, days off if I didn't have a Saturday afternoon game and they were playing in Paisley or they were playing relatively locally I would go uh, I loved it I, I loved it and I miss it I miss it a lot um, I miss the people it's a very it was a, a very different working environment um, working in Scotland then was like working in England had been when I started working in lower league football in the very early 90s. You had great access, everybody spoke to you. Um, and yeah, you've, occasionally, of course, you'd fall out with people, you'd say things that they, they took exception to and, and, and rightly if um, you know, they called you out on it if you thought that you had done them a disservice. But it all got forgotten about very quickly. They, um, they, they were great times. I, I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it, 
you might say, well, you would say that anyway, wouldn't you? No, not not to this extent. It were three fantastic years, and I was I was very sorry that it that it all wound up when it did. In terms of working at Satanta, I really need to ask you the obvious question. One of the the co-coms and pundits you worked with was was Craig Burley. Um, what's Craig like to work with? <laughs> Craig is Craig is Craig. Um, he's a top bloke. Uh, he's very good at what he does. Um, he is irascible, um, and I think that he set the bar very high in terms of punditry. Now, a lot of people don't like what he used to say, but I, but he was talked about, and he, he didn't necessarily say it for the sake of saying it. I think that he was um, very articulate. Um, and always had an opinion. I didn't always agree with everything that he said, but I knew that it would be a well thought out opinion and he wouldn't just be saying it to be devil's advocate. Um, I started um, doing some work for, for Absolute Radio. I had um, a four year break from talk sport uh, and did Premier League commentaries for Absolute Radio. And Craig was one of the first people that uh, I asked to come and do the games with me. Um, because he was box office, and it's no surprise that he's he's done as well as he has out in the in the states. Um, and I can guarantee that that he would be one that sometimes I would be watching at home and would think, "What are you doing?" And I'd be shouting at the telly, but you know, <laughs> he sucked you in. He's 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 got you where he wants you when that happens. But I, I totally understand how he rattled a lot of cages. But I've not got a bad word to say about him. Good guy, really good guy. In terms of co-coms, and I'm not asking you to name names or anything particularly here at all. Um, just going to make that clear before I ask the question. Um, see when you're see when you're commentating in a game, is it ever interesting where you obviously you're a commentator, but you're a football fan as well. So if your co-coms got a completely different opinion to how you've seen someone, is it sometimes hard to hold that in? Yeah, it doesn't happen as often as you'd think. Yeah, um, and by and large. If there's a difference of opinion, I would say in hindsight, that means I've got it wrong rather than they've got it wrong. Not always, I, w- I would say, but by and large. But sometimes, yeah, you, someone will say something and you will look at them, give them a sort of sideways look. Have you really seen that? Have you seen what I've just seen there? And you're waiting. And it, it doesn't happen very often that you then see a replay of it and they... and and you're still convinced you're right, and they stick to their guns in a, a kind of, uh, I'm not going back, just I'm not, I'm not going to try and um, apologise for what I've said, I'm just going to carry on going. It can make it, it, can make it difficult. Um, I've, never, I've, I've never been put in a situation where I've had to uh, say, you know, come up with a disclaimer, well, that's, you know, those are the views of so-and-so, <laughs> I'm distancing myself from that. Um, but yeah, it can be difficult, but it really doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often. You mentioned the fact it doesn't happen very often, and to be honest, I thought that, but I just thought as well, you know, we're all football fans, you know what it's like. Sometimes a pundit might say something and you disagree. So as I say, the reason I thought I wanted to, to speak to you about that is because we might think that at home. You mentioned the fact some people might say that about Craig, but when you're on the gantry, you know, it must be a completely different challenge. But the next sort of thing I want to go into with you, Jim, is, is grounds. You've been commentating for a long time, since 94, really. You've, you've talked about that before as well in the interview. But in terms of grounds and gantries, how have they improved over the years? Because I imagine at the, the dawn of the Premier League, they weren't up to the standards that they are now. Um, well, the worst one got condemned, uh, I'm delighted to say, and that was the top gantry at Portsmouth, which was just horrible. Um, and it had one of those old circular ladders that you had to walk up. So it went from ground level uh, and, you, and it was vertical, uh, absolutely dead straight. Uh, it had a tube around it, um, but you had to walk up. I'm not very tall and the, the steps were too far apart for a start. Uh, so I had to make sure that I didn't wear the wrong suit because there was always a chance that in, in sticking my right leg up, I would hear a nasty rip behind me. And I used to spend 90 minutes on that gantry thinking, I've got to walk down that sodding ladder. 
at five o'clock and it used to just fill me with dread. I'm not bad with heights or anything, but it used to fill me with dread. That was the worst one, but it got condemned. In the latter years of them being in the Premier League, we were at a much lower position, which was fine. Um, there are, like any working environment, there are some that you really like. There are some you don't like so much. Some you think are a little bit too far away. Um, some have got things at the wrong height. The, 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 you know, the chairs are the wrong height or something. That, I know that sounds a bit stupid, but I like to stand while I'm commentating and you can't at them all. Um, but generally speaking, they're all much of a muchness now. They have improved. Um, going back to the September days, uh, you'll remember, I'm trying to think where it would have been, Hamilton, Falkirk um, were playing a three-sided stadium, Cali as well, Inverness Cali. Uh, so uh, we'd be in temporary boxes, effectively, that had been erected on stilts. And I did some non-league games for Satanta, and, and some of those positions were a little bit interesting. I remember being at Droylsden on a very windy day, just to the east of Manchester, watching a conference game, and um, nearly got hit twice. And they, they were where we wanted to be clipped on to the gantry because it was that blowy. Not that they thought we would get blown over, but just that it would make it steadier um, for us. But generally speaking, they're all great. They're all fantastic. The best ones, um, Leeds is just brilliant. It's just the right height, just the right distance from the near touchline. You really feel part of it. And radio and TV both commentate from the same place there. Um, so that, if they get promoted back to the Premier League, I will very much look forward to going to Leeds on a, on a regular basis again because uh, there's just something about that gantry is just brilliant. One example in particular on gantries I want to ask you about, West Ham, Upton Park compared to the new ground because you talked about being far away. I imagine that's incredibly far away. The old one wasn't great, um, but it was infinitely better than than contribution of the new one because you are too far away um i mean it's the, it, it is the worst um it's also not helped by the fact that obviously the, the stadium is a bowl so if you're not right pretty much right on halfway then not only are you a long way away but you're not quite sitting square to the pitch not quite now it used to be worse and this sounds like a name drop and it's not meant to the old Bayern Munich Stadium, the Olympic Stadium out in um, you know, the Olympic Park, uh, the venue of the, 70, uh, the 72 Olympics and the 74 World Cup final. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, the far corner. So as you're looking at the pitch, the far corner, the top left-hand corner, couldn't see it. Not a clue what was going on. It was just so far away. And that was the same thing. It was an Olymp you, you were sat in what effectively was an athletic stadium. Um, you were far too far back. And also the, the angle of the, the bowl was, was, um, seemed to be a more severe circle. I know that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it just seemed as though the angle was, was, was different um, to, the, to the one corner. It was just horrendous. Um, but, yeah, by and large, they were all okay. Uh, West Ham is difficult though, It'd be, and it and it's just um, you know we're all getting older. Our eyesight's not as good as it used to be, um, but the far side of the pitch just seems miles away at West Ham. These days, of course, got the luxury of a monitor, and so you probably spend more time commentating off the monitor at West Ham than you would at, at, at most other grounds. But um, it's don't get me wrong, it's perfectly workable, but it's it's not my favourite. The last um, broad question I've got for you before a round of quickfire is, what advice would you give to any young budding commentators who are listening to this? The main piece of advice is believe in yourself. And if you want to do it, um, believe that you have the opportunity and that opportunities will come your way. And I firmly believe that, um, that that is the case. If you want something badly enough, you work hard, I think you're going to be desperately unlucky if you don't get an opportunity to have a really good crack at it. Um, it's a, it is a much harder industry to get into now than it was when I got into it 25 years ago. Um, I think it is 
uh, I mean, it's a it's a very different industry with the proliferation of social media with you know fantastic podcasts like this one i think it's easier to have your voice as somebody who who wants to start out in broadcasting and is, to get established but going back to what we were talking about about my start in local radio um in those days every city had two local radio stations that did sport but it simply doesn't happen now there isn't the money for it in in independent local radio that there was so you've got a whole avenue of where prospective commentators will come from where you could ply your trade that simply doesn't exist and so i think it is harder um that said there are now lots more vocational qualifications you can get um you, you can get very specific football broadcasting and journalism degrees that weren't around in my day so uh, those courses so i've not been on one uh, i know youngsters that have um there's, there's a lad on one at the moment who was a, a schoolmate of my eldest son uh who's doing, doing fantastically well with the opportunities that he's been given so that's certainly something to look at um the other lesson I would say from my life is do a degree. If you're going to go to university, and I don't think it's essential by any stretch of the imagination, but if you do a degree in something you want to do that you're interested in, it was a mistake that I made. If you do that, I then think you'll be in a position with a good degree behind you um, to be able to open doors within the media. Have persistence. Be prepared to make lots of cups of coffee for people. If you can do that well, um, it's amazing how quickly you will progress um, and just believe that the opportunities will come your way because I believe that if um, if you do think enough of yourself, it's not overconfidence, but I think that if you have a, enough uh, belief in your own destiny, you can make it. There will be football commentators in 20, 30 years' time, so it might as well be you. Go and do it. Great advice, great advice. And in terms of the, the quick fire questions, um, first one being, what's your favourite sport outside of football? Definitely cricket. Love cricket. It was a big, big Warwickshire fan growing up. Used to go and watch them play a lot. Um, and um, don't get the opportunity to watch much cricket at all now. I have done little bits of cricket commentary. Found it very difficult, full of awe um, for the people that do it. Uh, as well as they do for, for a number of different outlets. It's a, a great skill to have. Uh, but yeah, I love my cricket. Where's been your favourite place to travel with football? Um, one that I will never forget that I look back on with real fondness was spending four days in Albania because it was a place that I would never have normally have gone to. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. Went there at the turn of the century. Um, and it clearly has changed an awful lot in the last 20 years. Uh, I'm also fortunate enough to have done two World Cups, the rugby one in 95 and the football one in 2010 in South Africa. Um, I saw a lot, a lot of the country in 2010. Uh, again, a country that has developed immeasurably even in the, you know, in the 15 years between my visits. Um, and a, just a fantastic place, great people, and I have wonderful memories of both of those trips. So those are the two that I, I look back on uh, with real fondness. But you know, the, the, the last World Cup, the Russia World Cup, was sensational as well. Where's a place you've not travelled to yet, but it's on your list to go to? Japan. Uh, I did the 2002 World Cup off, uh, off tube, as we call it. Uh, so, you know, watching pictures back at base. Um, and... Uh, funny enough, a, a guy who was in my class at school uh, lives in Japan and has went out there for three months when he was 19 or 21 and, and hasn't come back yet um, and, and loves it. And it's one place I would like to go. Um, it just intrigues me um, as the, you know, the bright lights, uh, everything about it, the countryside, just think it's a fantastic place. And I don't have to think about it. It's definitely top of the list for the countries I want to go to that I've not been to. Beach holiday or city break? Um, depends who I'm going with, uh, but definitely city prayer. Um, I, I say that because I'm the only one in my family that would say that everybody else would rather be on the beach and, and doing stuff. Um, and, but, but yeah, city break. I like, I like going out and doing things. I'm not, I'm not one for lying around. Um, my, too much going on in my head for that. <laughs> um, favorite band? Uh, my musical taste is appalling. 
Um, but uh, so, so I have to justify that. Um, I love, I really like music from the seventies. Uh, the first band that I saw live was Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Oh, um, brilliant! And, and followed them ever since. I, I, you could, I, I'm sure you could ask a thousand that question to a thousand different people, and probably no one else would come up with Cockney Rebel. Um, I just love them. There's something about them. They're very much of their time. In many ways, you listen back to um, nearly everything that they've done, and it sounds dated. I don't care. I love them. Absolutely love them. And 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 also uh, Jerry Rafferty, who was clearly from not far from you, from Paisley, um, and um, you know not with us anymore. But his late seventies stuff was just sensational, and that's that's always a go-to album. As I say, I've got quite eclectic tastes. I could never pre- remotely pretend I've got mainstream taste in music, and. Um, I would never, if I would ever been in a football team, I would never have been in charge of what went on on the on the, the stereo on the bus. Not a chance. <laughs> Favorite film? Um, uh, I like, uh, I do like Quadrophenia. I'm thinking of films I've seen a lot. Ferris Bueller's Day Off still makes me laugh out loud, and I've, and I've watched that thirty times maybe. And I still, I still love that film. Uh, but the usual. Staples, Shawshank Redemption, stuff like that. I'm not actually massively into films. I, I really like my music. Uh, I'm not massively into films in the same way. But so, yeah, they're, they're quite bland mainstream answers, so I apologise for that. <laughs> not a problem at all. Um, tea or coffee? Definitely coffee. Far too much of it. Always got one on the go. Um, particularly at work. Um, I find it... Uh, almost like a little little crutch uh, i've got to have a got to have a cup of coffee on the go one for the first half one for the second half beer or wine i don't drink actually um but it used to be beer i, I never never drunk wine um so uh i probably had had um a lifetime's consumption of of guinness by the time i was about 28 so I called it a day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but so neither. But um, but I'll I'll take a coffee off you. But um, but yeah, it was it was beer definitely. Brilliant. Um, to finish on football, two questions. First one being, if you were a player, which manager would you choose out of the modern era to play for now? Oh wow. Um, you see. I'm just debating in my head, do you go Pep, do you go Klopp? I know that I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's merely a two-horse race and there are, there are so many others. Um, everybody I know that played for Brian Clough speaks so highly about him, but I think that he might have found me maybe too highly strung. I can't imagine that would have been a marriage that would have worked in heaven, me playing for Clough. Um, so... Uh, I don't know, Klopp maybe, because because I, I feel that I perform at my best when I'm happy. When I, I suppose most people do. Um, the the little I, I need the carrot, excuse me, I need the carrot rather than the, the the stick really. And perhaps with Pep there'd be a little bit too much stick, but boy would he improve me. The last either <laughs> to be to be I, I I don't know I think anybody who's playing for either of them will always look back and consider themselves extremely fortunate. Absolutely, and the last one I've got is the question where I put you on the spot. You've got to pick a five-a-side team from all your co-coms. Who's in it? <laughs> um, what then or now? Because that's because it's a very very different very different dilemma. I would say throughout your whole career. Um, so you, so I'm looking back then. Players, players at their best. Stuart Pierce, um, just to frighten the life out of everybody. <laughs> um, I do a lot of work with Matt Holland, and he wouldn't profess to be the most naturally gifted player, but he he got everything out of himself on such a regular basis. And just for that engine going up and down and the ability to uh, to chip in with some some important goals, uh, I think he'd, he'd be in there. Uh, and 
uh, and also he'd be a he'd be good in the dressing room as well. Um, who else would I have? Looking for I'm trying to think of a goalkeeper. See, you might have to have a rush goalie. I'm just trying to think of people that I've worked with, goalkeepers that I've worked with. And there, there aren't very many. I, I tell you who I'll go for. I've done the only very occasional game with Ray Clements. Um, so he would have to have to be in safe, great safe pair of hands. Um, I mean, as I say, I've, I've only done two or three with Ray, um, but yeah, so he'd be in. So I need a striker. Um, who, who would I go for? I've just got visions of Craig Burley putting his hand up, wanting a wanting a role as midfield enforcer, but I might have to pass on him. Um, I don't know. That's a really difficult question, Callum. <laughs> Stan Collymore would would have that little predatory instinct, I suppose. Um, Clive Allen also um, another one that I've done, you know, quite a few games with who, who would be able to chip in. Um, but yeah. A good question. A very good question indeed. I don't think they'd win too many games, actually, that lot. I don't know. It might, might be interesting. It'd be a fun ride. Absolutely. And I just want to say, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love speaking to, to people within the game, especially those I admire. And, and your commentary is something that I've, I've loved hearing over the years, as I say, based in Scotland. Um, the, the Satanta years of the SPL um, are years I remember fondly because they were, they were a big part of my, me growing up. So thank you very much. Well, not at all. I really appreciate the, um, the invitation to come uh, and to chew the fat with you. It's been great fun. And uh, thanks very much indeed, Callum. All the very best. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song